Section one of Octavius by Minucius Felix, translated by John Henry Freeze. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Marcus, read by Kevin S. Octavius, a Christian lawyer, read by Cadastra. Cecilius, a pagan friend of Octavius. Read by Adam Bielka. The Octavius by Minucius Felix. Chapter 1. When I look back and examine my recollections of Octavius, the dear and intimate friend of my youth, the charm of his character and personal affection are so firmly rooted in my mind that I see him as it were to be actually living again in the past, not merely recalling to mind what is finished and done with. The further he is removed from my earthly gaze, the more deeply is his image imprinted on my heart, nay, on my inmost feelings, and not without reason has the loss of so excellent a Christian left behind such infinite regret, for his affection for me was so passionate that, whether we were jesting or discussing serious matters, our wills were always in perfect harmony, our likes and dislikes identical. You would have thought we had only one soul between us. He was the sole confidant of my youthful follies, the sole partner of my errors. And when the gloom was dispersed and I emerged from the depths of mental darkness into the light of truth and wisdom, he did not reject my companionship, but what was even more noble, took the lead. And so when my thoughts returned to all the days passed together in closest intimacy my mind dwells with special interest upon that discourse of his in which by the force of his arguments cecilius who still clung to superstitious vanities was converted to the true faith chapter two octavius had come to rome on business and also to see me he had left home wife and children the latter still in the age of innocence when their broken utterances are so charming the childish prattle to which the halting accents of their faltering tongue lend additional sweetness words cannot express how eagerly and with what transports of joy i welcomed his arrival a joy increased by the suddenness of this visit of my bosom friend after two days uninterrupted enjoyment of his company when the eager longings of our hearts were satisfied and we had told each other of matters of mutual interest unknown to us in consequence of our separation we decided to pay a visit to ostia this is a delightful town where i hope to find in sea bathing an agreeable and beneficial treatment for certain humours from which i suffered owing to the vacation legal work was slack and had made way for the vintage and just then after the heat of summer the weather had turned cooler with the coming of autumn one morning at dawn we happened to be walking along the bank of the tiber towards the sea the gentle breeze invigorated our limbs and the walk over the sand as it yielded beneath our soft tread was especially delightful cecilius noticed an image of seraphis and after the custom of the superstitious vulgar put his hand to his mouth and kissed it chapter three thereupon octavius said brother marcus it is unworthy of an honest man to leave one who in and out of the house is your constant companion in such a blind and vulgar ignorance on a fine day like this how can you allow him to do homage to stones 
even though they are fashioned in the likeness of the gods anointed with oil and crowned with garlands you must be aware that the shame of his error will recoil as much upon you as upon him while octavius was speaking we were halfway between ostia and the sea and were already nearing the open beach where the gentle waves which lay the furthest stretch of sands extended and as it were laid it out for a promenade the sea is always restless even when the winds are still and although it did not reach the shore in white foaming waves we were highly delighted to see it curling and winding round and about our feet when we dipped them at the water's edge alternately it dashed against our feet and sported with the waves and then as it retired and retraced its course sucked them back into itself in this manner we walked on slowly and quietly along the shore of the gentle winding beach beguiling the way with conversation which turned upon octavius's account of his voyage after we had gone on for a considerable distance during the course of our conversation we turned back and went over the same ground again when we reached a spot where some small vessels hauled up on the land had been placed on oak supports high and dry above mud we saw some boys thoroughly enjoying themselves in a game of ducks and drakes this game is played as follows a shell rounded and polished by the constant movements of the waves is picked up from the beach and firmly grasped between the fingers on the flat side the player then stoops and bending down throws it as far as he can along the top of the water the missile either skims the surface or cutting through the crest of the waves darts along springing in the air the boy whose shell goes furthest and oftenest jumps out of the water claims the victory chapter four while we were all enjoying the sight cecilius alone was indifferent and did not even smile at the eagerness of the contest silent anxious holding aloof he showed clearly by the expression of his face the signs of some secret grief what does this mean i said to him what has become of your usual vivacity i miss the cheerfulness natural to you even on serious occasions he replied i have for some time felt keenly distressed and hurt by the manner in which octavius attacked and reproached you with carelessness in order to support his charges of ignorance against me more strongly though indirectly so i will go further the whole matter shall be thrashed out between octavius and myself if he wishes me to argue with him as a member of the sect which he attacks he will see at once that it is easier to argue as among friends than to engage in a scientific discussion let us sit down on that rocky mole projecting into the sea which has been made to protect the baths we shall be able to rest after our walk and discuss matters more earnestly we sat down as he proposed myself between my two friends with one of them on each side of me this was not a mark of respect rank or honour for friends are always equal or become so the object of the arrangement was that i as arbitrator should be next to both in order to hear them better and to keep the disputants apart chapter five then cecilius began as follows my dear marcus you cannot be in doubt as to the matter which we are now to investigate 
since, having carefully tested both systems, you have abandoned the one and chosen the other. Nevertheless, for the present occasion, your mind should be so trained that you can hold the balance evenly as an upright judge, without inclining to one side more than the other. Otherwise, your verdict will appear to be the expression of your own feelings, rather than the result of our arguments. If, then, you will take your seat as an entire stranger who knows nothing of either party, it will be easy for me to show that everything in human affairs is doubtful, uncertain, undecided, and probable rather than true. For this reason, it is the more surprising that some, weary of a thorough search after truth, should blindly give in to any opinion whatever, rather than steadfastly and diligently persevere in their investigations. Surely all must feel grieved and indignant at the thought that certain people, people too, ignorant of learning, unlettered, and unacquainted even with the meanest arts, should pronounce definitely upon the universe and the supreme power, which, after all these ages, still forms the subject of the deliberations of the philosophers and their numerous schools. And this is only natural, since human insignificance is quite incapable of investigating things divine. It is not given us to know, and we are forbidden to examine what is suspended above our heads in the heavens, or buried deep down in the earth. We should rightly consider ourselves tolerably happy and wise if we had a more intimate knowledge of ourselves in accordance with the maxim of the wise man of old. But, insomuch as abandoning ourselves to idle and senseless efforts, we overstep the limits of our insignificance, and, though thrown upon the earth, in our bold ambition transcend heaven and the stars themselves. At least let us not complicate our mistake by idle and terrifying fancies. Granted that, in the beginning, the germs of everything were condensed by the self fructifying action of nature. What god is the author of this? Granted that the members of the body of the universe have been united, arranged, and formed by a fortuitous concourse of atoms, what god is the architect? Let us admit that the stars have been lighted by fire, that the sky has been suspended aloft by the nature of its material, that the earth has been similarly secured by its own weight, and that the sea was formed from moisture. How does this explain this new religion, this dread, which is nothing but superstition? Man and every living creature which is born, lives, and grows is formed by a haphazard union of elements, into which they are again separated dissolved and dispersed, and in like manner all things in the universe flow back to their source and return to themselves. There is no artificer, no judge, no creator of the world, 
Thus, when the elements of fire have united, new and ever new suns are always shining. When the vapors of earth have been given off, the mists are continually increasing. When these mists are compressed and gathered together, the clouds rise higher. When they fall, the rain pours down, the winds blow, the hail rattles. If the thunder clouds collide, the thunder roars, the lightning glows, the thunderbolts flash and fall at random, hurl themselves upon the mountains, attack the trees, strike without distinction places sacred and profane, smite the guilty and oftentimes the pious. What need to speak of the shifting and uncertain storms by which of all things are violently whirled along promiscuously and in disorder? In shipwrecks are not the destinies of good and bad mixed up with no distinction of their merits and defects? In fires does not death come upon innocent and guilty alike? When an expanse of the sky is tainted by plague and pestilence, do not all perish indiscriminately? In the heat and fury of battle, is it not the best and bravest that fall? Even in peaceful times, not only is vice put on a level with virtue, but is even respected, so that often one does not know whether to detest a man's depravity or to envy his good fortune. But if the world were ruled by a divine providence and by the authority of some divinity, Phalaris and Dionysus would never have deserved a throne. Rutilus and Camillus banishment, Socrates the draught of hemlock, Look how the fruit trees, the corn white for harvest, and the ripe grapes are spoilt by the rain and beaten down by the hail. So either the truth, being uncertain, is hidden from us and concealed, or more probably fortune, not restrained by any laws, exercises its power in various dangerous emergencies. Chapter 6 Since then, either fortune is blind or nature is uncertain, how much more respectful, how much better, is it to receive the teaching of our ancestors as the high priest of truth, to reverence the traditional religion, to worship the gods whom your parents taught you to fear before you knew them intimately, and not to pronounce judgment upon the divinities, but to believe our forefathers, who, in a still uncivilized age, when the world was only just born, were thought worthy of having the gods as their servants or rulers. Thus, it is that in every empire, province, and city, each nationality observes the ritual of its own family and worships its local divinities. Thus, the Eleusinians revere Cyrus the Phrygians, the Great Mother, the Epidarians, Asclepios, the Chaldeans, Belus, the Syrians, Astarte, the Taurians, Diana, the Gauls, Mercury, the Romans, all the gods. This is why the power and authority of the Romans 
has embraced the entire world, extended its empire beyond east and west and the borders of ocean itself. In the field, they exhibited valor combined with respect for the gods. They fortified their city with religious rites, with chaste maidens, with many priestly offices and titles. When besieged, and with nothing between them and captivity but the capital, they still worshipped the gods whom others would have renounced as hostile, and unarmed, save with the weapons of religious faith, broke through the ranks of the Gauls, who were astounded at the audacity inspired by their reverence for the gods. Having stormed the enemy's ramparts, even the first frenzy of victory, they respected the divinities of the conquered, seeking everywhere for strange gods and adopting them as their own, and even setting up altars to unknown powers and the shades of the dead. Thus, by adopting the rights of all nations, they became entitled to rule over them. Hence, the feeling of reverence for the gods continued uninterrupted and uniform, not diminishing but increasing as time went on. For the ancients were accustomed to attribute sanctity to religious ceremonies and temples in proportion to the antiquity attributed to them. End of section one.